0: Welcome to The God Solution, a place where we discuss solid evidence for the Christian faith and interviews with leading Christian apologists. Each week, you'll be encouraged in your faith and equipped to defend it and share it in your daily life. You can find out more about The God Solution at Godsolutionshow.com. Now, here's your host, Nate Herbst. Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I am excited that you're tuned in again today. Today, we're going to have a very special treat for you. We're going to be interviewing Dr. Lydia McGrew. I promise you, you're going to be very amazed by some of the examples that we talk about today. You'll be encouraged in your faith. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Dr. McGrew. Uh, She's a widely published analytical philosopher, and listen, guys, I took analytical philosophy in college, and it wasn't an easy class, so that basically means she's really smart. She's a homeschooling mother, a blogger, and the wife of philosopher and apologist Dr. Timothy McGrew. She received her Ph.D. in English from Vanderbilt University in 1995, and she's published and continues to publish extensively in the Theory of Knowledge. She specializes in pure formal epistemology and in the application of formal epistemology to the evaluation of testimony and to various topics in the philosophy of religion. Her articles in philosophy have appeared in such journals as Ergo, Philosophical Studies, the Journal of Philosophical Research, and Kentness. She and Dr. McGrew co-wrote the article on the resurrection of Jesus for the Blackwell Companion to Natural Theology, and she wrote the article Historical Inquiry for the Rutledge Companion to Theism. In 2017, she published Hidden in Plain View, Undesigned Coincidences in the Gospels and Acts, which defends the reliability of the New Testament using a long-neglected argument from incidental details. Without any further ado, welcome to The God Solution Show, Dr. Lydia McGrew.
1: Thanks, Nate. It's great to be here.
0: Tell me a little bit about how you came to write this book, Hidden in Plain View.
1: It was a great story. My husband, Tim McGrew, has always been intensely interested in the history of ideas. That's one of his specialties in philosophy. He got a a Templeton grant to write about the history of the deist controversy. And several years ago, um, partly in connection with that grant, but even before that, he began doing a lot of research into older writers on biblical and apologetic topics, And he rediscovered the evidence that is called undesigned coincidences Hmm. by reading William Paley. Paley is better known for his design argument, but he has a lot of apologetic stuff about uh, Jesus. And also a a man named J.J. Blunt. These were from the 18th and the 19th centuries. He was very enthusiastic. He told me about this, and uh, he said, you've got to read this. So I had to go on a train uh, journey on the Amtrak here in the United States, and anybody who's ever traveled on the Amtrak knows that it's usually late. So he ran out, and he printed for me, he ran out to Kinko's, and he printed for me a copy of a book called The Whore I, Paul and I by William Paley, which is it's free online because it's so old, and he, he spiral-bound it, put a nice cover on it, and said, here, read this on the train. So I did. And uh, it took my mind off of the journey and so forth, and I was so taken by that argument for undesigned coincidences that I said, yes, you, we definitely need to bring this back to a modern audience and update it and make it available in a new form. So Tim and I agreed that whoever had the time to write it first would be the one to do it. And so <laughs> I started right away in the summer of 2015 when my homeschooling, uh, school year was over, and then I took some time to find a publisher. That was a little bit difficult, but the Lord brought me to DeWard Publishing out of Ohio, and it was published in the spring of, uh, early spring of 2017. So it was a, a really cool thing, and Tim has always been most generous, even though I got the argument from him. He told me about it. He inspired me to do it, but I'm the one who wrote the book. He's never begrudged that in the slightest, and it's just, he's really happy to have it out there.
0: You know, he seems like an amazing guy. He's only been on the show, I think, I think we did a two-part interview with him or something like that. I need to get him back on the show because I really enjoyed uh, having some time with him. And he really enjoyed talking about your book when he was on with us.
1: This argument is so important to him. He was It was his enthusiasm that really sparked my enthusiasm. And so, of course, I, I designated, or dedicated the book to him and said, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants and included him and William Paley in <laughs> that ca- category.
0: Wow. Well, hey, before I go any further, I just want to thank you and your husband. You two are kind of like a a power couple in apologetics, and I'm just excited to see you guys demonstrating that, not just the apologetics, but how to do marriage. That's an apologetic to our society, right? That's something that the society needs to see. So working together as a team for the Lord, doing your your diligent duty to, to do good apologetics. I'm just thankful for your example as a couple of them. Thank you. Well, a lot of our listeners probably right now are going, what in the world is an undesigned coincidence? That sounds crazy. And, in fact, I didn't really know what that was before I interviewed your husband. So what is an undesigned coincidence?
1: What I like to call it is an incidental interlocking that points to truth that phrase did not make it into my book because I only thought of it after I wrote the book, but I think it works well. It's an incidental interlocking that points to truth. The book has a picture of a jigsaw puzzle on the front and Tim will sometimes use a jigsaw puzzle as a slide when he talks about it. These things fit together. So I'm going to give uh, a contemporary made up example. Let's suppose that you come to work one day and um, while you're there, one of your coworkers comes in shortly thereafter and says, Wow, I saw a terrible accident at the corner of, and names a specific intersection near the office. And he says it was amazing, and the police were directing traffic through uh, shortly thereafter, but this truck smashed into this car. So a few hours pass, and another coworker comes in late. And the second person doesn't appear to speak to the first person. But he says, I'm so sorry I'm late. I had a flat tire. I was coming into work, and I drove through the intersection of, and he names the same intersection, and there was glass all over the road for some reason that hadn't been cleaned up, and it got into my tire, and I had a flat tire. And so I had to go to the tire shop and call someone else to bring me into work, and that's why I'm late. That is an undesigned coincidence. These people do not appear to have colluded with one another. One of them does not appear to have copied his story from the other. They don't appear to have been using a newspaper article or anything. And one of them does not even mention the accident. But you can well imagine that an accident would cause glass in the road, which could cause the second person to be late. So they fit together like two pieces of a puzzle, and they both appear to be telling the truth. In this way, they confirm one another.
0: That's a great example. And it's something that you give dozens of examples of in your book. Mm-hmm. All right, well, let's jump into that a little bit. Can you give a couple of those examples? Now, unfortunately for you listening today, you're probably thinking, man, I'd love it if she just told us all nearly 50 or so. I'm guessing there are about 50 in the book if it's I a
1: few dozen. Remember. I mean, yeah. it's something like that. Yeah, if you count the Axe ones.
0: Yeah, so I, I'm guessing people would love to hear all of them. But sorry, you can't. You're going to have to buy this book either on Kindle or in print. You're going to have to get it. But let's start by hearing a few examples of those undesigned coincidences that you share in your book, in the Gospels. I'm going to start
1: with some from the Gospels. And I want to emphasize here, undesigned coincidences, as my first example showed, are not a Bible thing alone. You will encounter them in your daily life. Detectives use them. Uh, Cold case detective J. Warner Wallace wrote an afterword to my book, He uses them in in solving crime, lawyers use them, and you probably use them in figuring out whether or not your cat knocked over the glass of milk in your house. So they're a very down-to-earth kind of thing. They're not just some special Bible thing. So I'm going to start with one uh, that starts with Matthew 14. And in Matthew 14, he is about to tell the story of the death of John the Baptist, He says that Herod was musing about who Jesus could be. And Herod said to his servants, this must be John the Baptist risen from the dead. That's why all these miracles are being done, because Herod has heard rumors of Jesus. Now that little phrase, to his servants, is unique to Matthew. Many scholars talk about something that they call the synoptic problem, and they will say that Matthew got a lot of his material from Mark. Matthew may indeed have used Mark. I'm not saying that's not true, but we do find unique things in Matthew, and sometimes they're just short little phrases. They're not even whole stories. That's the case here. To his servants, is not in Mark, even though the story about the death of John the Baptist is in Mark and very similar to Matthew. Now, you might say to yourself, well, maybe Matthew just put that in there that he said it to his servants to make it vivid. Sometimes if we read a recreated version of history, the person will put in things. You know, Galileo said this as he set down his pen or something to make it sound more interesting. So maybe Matthew just made that up about his servants. That's certainly what a skeptic would think. But what's interesting is then we can go to Luke chapter 8 and we actually find this confirmed. In Luke 8, he is not talking about the death of John the Baptist. It is a completely different topic. Luke is talking about some people who came with Jesus out of Galilee. These these women had some money. They were some women with money. And they kind of followed along with Jesus and his disciples and made contributions to their ministry. And it it's ministered to their needs. And Luke is just listing them. So he lists Mary Magdalene, for example, and he says, and other women. And then he lists Joanna, the wife of Husa, Herod's household manager. She's just in there in the list. This answers a very obvious question how in the world could matthew really know what herod said to his servants that question is what might make us think matthew made it up and yet here we find that herod's household manager's wife was one of jesus followers and i think we can say in that society Huzza must have been supportive of jesus ministry as well or he would not have allowed his wife to be following jesus around and giving money to him well in this way a very natural way the news of what Herod was saying, just chit-chat about what Herod was saying to his servants, could have gotten to the Christian community and thereby to Matthew, the author of the Gospel. So it's just this wonderful little interlocking between Matthew and Luke, between completely different passages.
0: Amazing. I mean, that one was the first one I heard, and it captured me, too. I thought, that's just fantastic. You said that you had a couple other examples from the Gospels?
1: Sure. So one that I really like... In Luke 23, Jesus has been brought to be uh, judged by Pilate. And they say to Pilate, we found this man forbidding to give taxes to Caesar, which of course was a lie, Jesus hadn't said that, and saying that he himself is the king. He himself is Christ the king. So Herod goes in, uh, excuse me, I misspoke, Pilate goes in to speak to Jesus, and he says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate had to take notice of this accusation. He was the governor. He was the procurator. Somebody setting himself up to be the king of the Jews could be attempting to start a revolution. So he says, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus says, you've said it. Now, one way you can translate that is just the way we would use it. You said it, and it looks like that may have been the use of the idiom. But at a minimum, He is being very cheeky. He is not denying that accusation. And in Luke, it just says Pilate went back out to the people and he said, I find no guilt in this man. What? Pilate goes to him and he says, are you the king of the Jews? Very serious accusation. Jesus is like, yup. And Pilate says, no problem. And goes back out and Hmm. says, I find no guilt in him. So you're a king? No problem. That is not how the Roman procurator would have reacted. So it's a puzzle in Luke. Why does Pilate say he finds no guilt in Jesus? Well, when we go to John, John, of course, was written after Luke. I, I don't have any question about that, that John was not available. The Gospel of John was not available to Luke. John writes that when Pilate asks him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answers at more length. He says, My kingdom is not of this world. He says, for this cause, I was born into the world. He is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight. So Pilate decides that he is a harmless religious crank. So then he goes out and says, I find no guilt in this man. That is the explanation of what is left puzzling in Luke. So John, which had not yet been written yet, explains Luke. But then it can be flipped around, too luke explains john john does not give the accusation that they brought against him in john Pilate simply walks in and says are you the king of the jews well what was this a random question he asked everybody who came to him obviously not why did he ask him that question that's explained in the earlier gospels gospels so they intersect they interlock in two different directions this is great because one is written earlier and one is written later and each of them is slightly incomplete and yet they complete each other and give us the full story of what happened
0: there that's amazing if you're just tuning in you're listening to the god solution you can find out more about the god solution at god we're interviewing dr lydia mcgrew about her book hidden in plain view undesigned coincidences in the gospels and acts it's a fantastic book I encourage you to pick it up on Amazon or wherever you buy books as soon as you can, and you won't regret it, I promise. Uh, Dr. McGrew, you've just shared a couple incredible examples with us, and I just want to give you plenty of time if you have another one. If, if not, I have one that, that I really liked from the Gospels. Go that I was... What's one of your favorites? So one of the ones that I really enjoyed, and you can elaborate maybe more than I can for the uh, audience, but was just Philip and the Feeding of the 5,000. Why in the world... Would Jesus ask Philip and John, is there any place to buy food for these 5,000? Why Philip?
1: Right. So that's an interesting question. Philip is maybe not the most obscure of the apostles. I might pick James the son of Alphaeus or something for that. (laughs) Most people don't even remember that he existed, but he's certainly not one of the most prominent. What Tim likes to do when he tells this example is that he will say to the audience members, If I'm going to write a story, a made-up story in the Gospels about Jesus and his disciples that concerns money and food, which disciple might you have Jesus address? And they'll suggest possibly Judas because he kept the purse. Or Peter, Peter's always safe because Peter pops up everywhere. You know, Peter, James, and John are especially close to Jesus. And uh, somebody suggested maybe Matthew because Matthew had previously been Uh, a tax collector. So you can suggest these things, but there's no reason to suggest Philip. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000 as told in John, Jesus is noticing, it's getting to the end of the day, the people uh, need to eat, and he turns to Philip and he says, hey, where can we buy bread for these people to eat? Now, he's doing what I call trolling them. He's teasing them. John says he himself knew what he would do. He is not seriously suggesting that they should buy bread for all these people. And the disciples immediately protest we could never afford to buy bread for 5,000 men plus women and children. But he wants to make a point. He wants to draw their attention to the miracle he is about to do. So why does he ask Philip? Well, you know, even if we do it completely randomly, I suppose we have a slightly less of one out of a 12 chance that he might have just randomly picked Philip that he was just standing at his elbow. But it would be satisfying if we had a better explanation. When we go over to the Gospel of Luke, we find that it just mentions in passing that when they went over there and then the feeding of the 5,000 takes place, It was in a deserted place belonging to the town of Bethsaida. Okay, so what? Well, now let's go back to the Gospel of John, but to a completely different portion of the Gospel of John. It's in John 1 and again in John 12, different settings, not the feeding of the 5,000. When Philip is mentioned in John, it says he was from the town of Bethsaida. Now we got it all fitting together. He's a local man from near that region where the feeding of the 5,000 is taking place. So Jesus turns to him and essentially says, Hey, Philip, you're from around here. Where can we buy bread so that these may eat? But John does not point out in that context that Philip was from Bethsaida. He mentions it casually in other contexts. And John never points out anywhere that the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida. And Luke never says that Jesus spoke to Philip at all in that context. So neither of them has all of the information to put this fact together, this probability that that is why Jesus spoke to Philip. Just these tiny little things and these wonderfully casual connections, and this is really what we find in true eyewitness testimony.
0: Amazing. I mean, just so amazing, so encouraging, very exciting. I'm reminded of Bart Ehrman here, and we've talked about him a lot over the years on the show, but in... One of his books, I think it's in Jesus Interrupted or one of those, he says, we can't read the Gospels together. We have to keep each of them separate. You can't read them. He goes, evangelicals always want to read them all together and try to, try to come up with a, a unified testimony using all the Gospels, but we can't do that. We have to keep them all separate, and look at one at a time. And I hear things like this, and, and it just reminds me, man, that is probably the worst way that he could approach the Gospels, Correct.
1: It is. It's the worst way you could approach history, period. What is so awful about Ehrman and and many other scholars in biblical studies as well is that they're doing very bad historical methodology. Mm. If you were reading um, different accounts of a battle or something, the battle of Gettysburg uh, um, or something like that, you should certainly try to read all of your accounts together and put them together. This is how you're going to get a a good picture of what really happened. Ehrman wants to convince people that harmonizing and putting Gospels together is a special evangelical thing, that it's a special thing religious people do because they're desperate to see this as true. And that is false. It's a thing that historians do and that good historians do to understand what really happened. And I think we all need to get our our backbone sort of strengthened to say, Uh, No, I'm not harmonizing the Gospels because I'm an evangelical or because I'm an inerrantist, if you are an inerrantist, or because I'm uh, theologically inclined. I'm harmonizing the Gospels because they, they put themselves forward as historical sources, and I want to know what happened. I want to get the best understanding of what happened, and we all need to be willing to say that.
0: Right and hey, just for the record, I am an Anarist. <laughs> I, I but think regardless, that, that you yeah, know, that gets a that's a question matter. that gets out. Yeah, that's yeah. the
1: great thing. It's not a theological matter, and I find there's this word, and it drives me crazy that New Testament scholars use it's the word conflate. Hmm. Now, usually, when you hear the word conflate, you think it means a mistake, right? If I conflate two things, I'm confusing you know, two different people named Joe or something, and it's not really the, you know, two different people. I conflated two different Joes or something. So they'll use the word to conflate the Gospel accounts. And then you read a little further, and you discover that all they mean is to put them together. So if you, you know, say, well, this happened and that happened, you're conflating the accounts. I consider that to be a sort of a prejudicial word, even though it's become a term of art in New Testament studies. Um, And I think we should use combine instead of conflate, because that shows, that's a more neutral word that shows that we're just combining historical sources.
0: That's exactly right. And, you know, Ehrman actually does say that in that same, you know, book that I was quoting. He says that we read it in a religious sense, not in a historical sense but what you're what you're saying and I believe is absolutely correct is no in a historical sense we should read it this way we should look for the connections and see the big picture like jim wallace would do if he was investigating a crime he's going to look at all the testimony before him and try and come up with what actually happened based on that testimony he's not just going to divide everybody up and and look at one in its in its own light without looking at the others
1: Correct, exactly.
0: Well, real quickly, what implications do undesigned coincidences have for our larger views of the Gospels and Acts? What picture do they give us of these books and these authors?
1: One of the things they show us is that these writers are trying to write historically. They're trying to give us the factual truth. They're honest in a very ordinary sense of that word. And then the second thing is that they are succeeding in writing accurate history they really are historically reliable. What I find interesting is that these coincidences come up in all different parts of the documents. They're not just nuggets. They can't be isolated from the rest of the documents. And they're in the beginning and the middle and the end. They're in the miraculous parts and the non-miraculous parts and so forth. I was just hearing about someone recently who was uh, questioning his faith and influenced by a book by a skeptic. And the person who was influenced by the skeptic's book said explicitly, we have to take every incident in the Bible separately and confirm it as a separate incident. Well, that's a terrible way to do history. Yeah. What you do instead is you try to find out, is the source a good source? Is this document a good historical source? And we would do that for anything. We would do that for uh, Manchester's book about Winston Churchill, we would do that for Winston Churchill's History of the English-speaking People, we would do it for Tacitus, we would say, how historically reliable is this? And, you know, you you do check it out, but once you've begun to check it out and you've begun to build an inductive case, then you draw a conclusion. And we can draw a conclusion about Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and especially Acts, um, about the fact that they are really historical. it's sort of like if you sample a loaf of bread and you say, is this regular bread or is this uh, banana nut bread? So you take one sample and it's like, yep, I'm tasting the banana. And there, you know, and you sample another and, oh, there's the nuts and so forth. And you do it all the way through at different parts. And then you say, but maybe just the part I didn't sample, that's the part that's just plain white bread. Well, that would be extremely poor reasoning. Similarly, if we sample john and we find him being historical over and over again and being confirmed by undesigned coincidences and external confirmations as well we should conclude that he is intending to be and succeeding in being historical i wanted to mention one more point about john here which is that he's the last gospel and according to a developmental view you might expect john to contain more legend or more embellishment there's this sort of notion that they're growing and that, that as they grow longer or further away in time, they grow away from the fact. Certainly that's something Bart Ehrman mm-hmm. would suggest. And we find, I find just the opposite in Undesigned Coincidences, that John is the last Gospel, and I have more Undesigned Coincidences for John's unique material than for that of any of the other Gospels. It's a wonderful thing. I think this is because there's so much unique material, so the more he tells us, the more we have a chance to confirm the truth of by these incidental interlockings with the other Gospels. So it's it's a wonderful conclusion that we can draw about these authors.
0: You know, John, of course, Ehrman would say, you know, he has this high view of Jesus that's probably Pauline and maybe as it adapted over the course of that first century, you know, and then he wrote with that perspective. But Mark, who probably wrote first, right there in chapter 2, calls Jesus the Lord of the Sabbath with the ability to forgive sins. Obviously as high a Christology as you're going to find. So it's not that these views of Jesus evolved from Mark till John in the writing of the Gospels. It's it, They all reported what they actually saw and what they actually knew to be true. And Bert, Bart Ehrman and many others like him really fall apart here.
1: I agree. I think John simply chose to record some things that are relatively more explicit And that's fine. That's just selectivity. We should not assume that all of the Gospel authors had the same preoccupations or interests that we did, so they might have selected different material. So that's what Bart will say. He'll make an argument from silence. Well, if Jesus really said, I and the Father are one, why didn't Mark include it? And that's a terrible argument. from silence fall down all the time in history. Tim likes to use the one about Marco Polo going to China and coming back and writing about it, and never mentioning the Great Wall of China. And Tim will say, think, Marco, did you see something that was this many feet wide and this many miles long. You know? <laughs> right. Did you just miss it? Um, so there's things that you'd be astonished that authors don't mention when they write histories that are completely hmm. reliable, and then that shouldn't make us question when someone else does mention those things. So these fit together, and I'm just really glad that we have all of them.
0: Well, that concludes the first part of our interview with Dr. Lydia McGrew. I hope you enjoyed it, and I look forward to having you back with us again next week for the second part of the interview. You know, what we heard today reminds us yet again that we can trust what's in the Bible. And that means if you haven't yet trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, you can do that with confidence. You can know that He is who He says He is, and that He has the power and authority to offer you eternal life. Right now, if you've never taken that step to believe in him as Savior and Lord, I pray that you do that. You could even verbalize that to him right now. Say, Jesus, I believe that you are who you say you are and that you died on the cross for my sins and rose again to give me eternal life. Today I ask you to be my Savior and Lord. The Bible is very clear that if you took that step and believed in him as Savior and Lord, that you've been adopted into his family. You can look forward to an eternity with him in heaven and a life of meaning and purpose here on this earth. Again, I always encourage you to go to GodSolutionShow.com, get this show and all of our past shows there. Also check out LydiaMcGrew.com. That's LydiaMcGrew.com. And pick up her book, Hidden in Plain View, the next time you get a chance. Thanks so much for listening. Like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. I look forward to talking to you again next week. You've been listening to The God Solution with Nate Herbst. We hope that you were encouraged by what you heard today and are better equipped to share Christ this week. You can get the audio from today's broadcast and all the past God Solution shows at Godsolutionshow.com. Thanks for listening and being a part of The God Solution.